0: It's OLWJ Captivation, Unlimited Enthusiasm Toward the Future. The podcast is introducing you to boundless superstars and other professional individuals who are capable of providing you information on achieving maximum success. Segments and episodes of the podcast will be devoted to financial wellness, For everyone deserves a shot at broadening their financial horizon. I am the host, Otis Lewis Wilson Jr. Welcome. First, you know what I must do? Offer special thanks to you, my audience and special guests who have made this podcast possible. It is greatly appreciated and I encourage you to tell others about this podcast so that they will check it out as well. On this episode of OLWJ Captivation, I am going into the Boundless Archives for an interview that I did with Reverend Joseph Parker of the David Chapel Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. He is a true definition of boundless. A leader, minister, family man, part of the civil rights movement, what more can I say? Without further ado, here is a recorded interview with Reverend Joseph Parker, right here on OLWJ Captivation, the podcast in which the letters in the title represent my name. Pastor Parker, thank you so much for joining us. How are things going? Things are going well,
1: Brother Wilson. I appreciate this opportunity uh, to have this conversation with you today and uh, looking looking forward to wherever it takes us.
0: Well, Pastor Parker, I definitely want to thank you for joining me. And let's get things started by you telling the audience a little bit about yourself.
1: Right. Uh, I am, I was born, my, my family roots on both sides are in Alabama. Uh, my father was a Baptist uh, pastor. Uh, he was uh, an educator at one time. served as a uh, teacher, as a principal. Um, he was a college graduate. A, a then graduated seminary. He went to Morehouse College in Atlanta. Uh, was a classmate slash friend of Dr. King. They finished uh, in um, Dr. King finished in '48. My father finished in '49. Uh, he was a World War II Purple Heart veteran, um, <clears throat> and he was, uh, my mother uh, was, a, is a Native, she's actually last month turned 103, and still clothed in her right mind, thank God for that, and able to get around. Yes. Um, she uh, was a, a lifelong teacher, second generation, her mother was a teacher as well, um, they both, my mother... Uh, was raised in a town in the city called Jacksonville, uh, which is where Jacksonville State University is located now. Our father was raised in a county next door uh, in a rural community called East Duboga. He was the oldest of 10 and was the first to go, a uh, farming family, uh, and first to go to college. Um, uh, she, went, she finished Alabama A&M University And uh, my father finished Morehouse and then Gammon Theological Seminary and um, uh, got married uh, in Alabama. My father was pastoring um, in uh, a city called Anniston, Alabama, uh, and that's where I was born. Um, And right shortly after that, he got called to a church in Montgomery, and um, he was there in Montgomery in and uh, of course, Dr. King came later, but they both were part of starting uh, the Montgomery Improvement Association, known as the Birmingham, India, Montgomery Bus Boycott. So my father was one of the founders of that with Dr. King and Dr. Abernathy. Um, and my father then got called to a church in Montgomery, I'm sorry, in Birmingham, uh, about 57 or so. Uh, Because I have my my sister, who's right under me, was born in 57 in Birmingham. So from 57 up through um, my first, second year of college, I was raised in Birmingham, in segregated Birmingham. And my father, of course, was pastoring there. He was a uh, professor at uh, the Birmingham Baptist College while he was there, involved in civil rights uh, activism. Um, with all that, that we've heard about in, in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Uh, my mother was teaching then, and uh, as I said, I have four sisters. One is older and three are under me. I'm the only boy in the family. Um, and um, um, so that's, that's basically it. So, so a lot of the crucible that raised me was in a civil rights educational, uh, context, um, activism, community involvement, public service, service. um, And so that uh, was what raised me. And and I was raised, now that I look back, I was raised in a family uh, that was um, one of service. And and I can find that in several uh, areas of, of my family's lives.
0: That is awesome. That is awesome. What were your aspirations as
1: a child? <clears throat> well, um, the first thing that I can recall is my, fo- my mother uh, had a black uh, podiatrist, foot specialist that she would go and see. And I would go with her on many of her appointments and ended up deciding that I wanted to be a foot specialist, a medical doctor who specialized in in feet, uh, podiatrists. And so, um, of course, through elementary school, and we didn't have middle schools in in Birmingham when I was growing up, so I went to segregated school, a segregated school, was one school in the neighborhood from uh, the first grade up through the eighth grade. And, of course, I had done kindergarten uh, earlier, um, and, and that was a segregated school. And then in 66, when I went into the ninth grade, uh, I went, uh, and integrated a high school, uh, that was there. And so all the way up through, uh, the eighth grade, I'm basically taking, um, you know, the standard curriculum there. There was nothing necessarily special about it other than what my other friends were doing. I was a musician, uh, I, uh. Played the saxophone, alto saxophone, uh-huh. starting in the third. That's me. Is that right? Yes, hey, sir. Yes, so sir. We, we, we. No wonder we connect in. <laughs> <laughs> so I started in the third third grade and played up through through well through high, through college actually, but uh, had some skill and ability. I ended up being first chair. Um, I played concert band, marching band. Um, and uh, ended up playing all first chair, all city band, all that kind of thing. So I then go to the white high school, uh, Woodlawn High School. And, and actually, there's a movie that was made about my high school and a brother who played football, the first black to play football, some four or five years after I and some others integrated the school. Uh, and so I tell people that the bad things they saw on that movie those are four years later than when I was there. I had already graduated, was in college, when he came along. Um, and so uh, when I went to, to high school, and, and I could go into um, later into some of the, the, the things that I experienced there in terms of uh, white uh, supremacy and racism and all of that, but, but I started... Uh, I wanted to play my music, my, my saxophone, and in those days we had instruments that were owned by the school, and so we would just use those. Uh, when I got into the ninth grade, the band booster club owned those instruments in this white high school, um, and they, the the, 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 and there was the parents, the boosters. They did not want me to use their instrument because they thought that I would give them their, their children's germs and this is what they said um, the band teacher told me I had to start in the beginning band and given all that I had accomplished and so and that I, I couldn't use our instrument so I decided I was going to uh, do that so I started the beginner's band my parents bought me an alto sax con and I don't know when they still even make con I think it cost in 66 like four hundred dollars. And uh, that was my instrument, and uh, I ended up achieving the same sorts of things there at Woodlawn that I achieved earlier and even played with Birmingham Symphony um, during those years. Um, And as I was coming up, this podiatry thing was on me, and so I pursued... Uh, all of the sciences, all of the math, I was in pre-med because that, that was what I was thinking I was going to do. Um, and so it ended up not being, um, and, and I could go into that later, but uh, uh, that changed in, in college. Uh, and so up, up through high school, uh, and, and of course I was active in the church because my father was the pastor of the church that I was raised in. So that was always there in my neighborhood was there. And this white school was actually in walking distance, which is why I chose to go to this school as opposed to everybody else in the neighborhood was wanting and willing to be bused across town. And I was unwilling since my parents had given me a choice. And in sixty in 66, 65, somewhere in there in Birmingham, we had the freedom of choice. And my parents gave me the uh, opportunity to decide. And I chose that I wanted to go to Woodlawn. Um, and so uh, the sciences, the math, I took took the the, the highest levels that could be taken. Uh, I was in uh, the college track. There, there was a vocational track and a college track, uh, college prep track. And so I was in the college prep track. Um, and so when I graduated from high school, my desire was uh, to go into um, medicine and be a foot specialist. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting, interesting. You know, it, it's amazing how things can change so swiftly, yes, so fast. You know, it's been described that you are described as called by God shaped by experience a man of action and a man of renaissance in your own words describe these words and what they mean
1: <laughs> um well that that phrase or that description um, um came from, I got an award at uh, the University of Texas, and the person who introduced me used that phrase um, in, in what he, I guess, had seen in me in his own conclusion about me, and then it ended up being put in uh, a UT magazine, um, and so... Uh, Those are not my words, but his words. And I I think part of what was happening was um, he had recognized, I guess, each of those, that one, that I was trying to live out a calling as opposed to employments and professions. That that, there was a sense uh, that, that I am living out a calling, which actually is how I see my life even in in, in, every, in every employment context, and I've been in uh, several different types of employment areas, I have seen each of those as a calling. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, I think he was aware of some of the things I shared with you about segregation, integration. Uh, he also knew uh, that I uh, had a heart condition uh, and I think at the time, by the time I got this award, I think I had, uh, I think just received my heart transplant. And this may have been one of the first events that I was able to come out to after getting that transplant. Um, and so he knew that I had had been dealing with uh, a bad heart since I was about 45 and that all of those things had had shaped me. Uh, he knew about me being active uh, in the community uh, as I tried to juggle and balance and multitask uh, all of the uh, areas of opportunity that God had given me to serve in. And I guess he, he saw me as being some kind of um, uh, person willing to go outside of the box and try different things. That's how i tried to do my pastorate, um, explore, uh, discover uh, things, not being un, uh, unwilling to risk and fail and keep going. So um, I think I may not have used the words that he did, but in terms of what I understand, them to convey, I would agree with that assessment. Mm-hmm.
0: You have spent a great portion of your life and work championing for the equality of people, um, you know, the ethical and fairness and treatment of all people. As an individual who's African American, what has made this a challenge for you in these responsibilities?
1: Well, um, thanks be to God that uh, my father and I uh, were very close and would take me around with him to a lot of these things that I mentioned uh, that were happening in Birmingham terms of protest, marching, uh, even allowing uh, the, the building of the church he pastored to be used for protests and organizing meetings there in Birmingham. And so I grew up, one uh, basically being raised to serve, because that's what I saw. I grew up uh, without ever studying theology or, or uh, any of that, I came to see that the Christian life was about uh, serving and, and being involved in the community uh, and that uh, justice is what uh, should be, be involved with. And so I saw my mother and my father in their own spheres of influence, having this concern and championing and being involved in, in these um, uh, equity, Fair treatment, sorts of issues, um, and so it—it it, it really is almost me living out what I saw uh, and experienced growing up, and—and and it has uh, come to be part of who I am, and what what the op- many of the opportunities I have found myself in, um, uh, is what I would call uh, a bridge builder, and and that that word has been something that people have used to refer to me in terms of being a bridge builder between various communities, not all of which have just been race. Uh, I'm, I'm um, uh, interdenominational because I saw my father doing that. My father had relationships yes, with John Baptist, which is what I was raised, and he was, and so my life has involved interfaith, not only Christians, but Jews and Muslims, even uh, 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 others who, who have these different religions that have come <clears throat> into being. And so, um, so I, I, I'm involved with those and in some way I bridge those. The challenge that I say is if you either uh, are called to that or you want to be that, the challenge of being a bridge builder is that you get walked on from both sides. And so you have to be certain that it is a calling because um, when you're standing in that place of trying to bridge different groups, different perspectives, you can get a uh, walk on from all of them. And so those have been, been the challenges being, being having to deal with those. Sometimes it's a positive, sometimes it's a negative, but, but you have to be willing uh, to do that. Mm -hmm. when
0: i think about the sermons that uh you've preached that i've heard you preach and the things that i've read that you've accomplished which we're going to talk about some of those my next question crosses over to the career as a lawyer what inspired you to go into the career of law
1: well um it's an interesting, interesting story. So, so I believe in the providence of God, um, and and from a very young age, uh, I always sought to hear God in in my life, um, and and what I needed to do. And sometimes I, uh, I was listening, and other times I was not not listening. Um, <clears throat> and so I mentioned to you earlier uh, when I went to college. Uh, I was uh, set on going into pre-med. So I took a, uh, they they did, uh, I guess it was an entrance uh, placement test for all of us who were there to try to decide what level of science and so forth that we we would go in. So I I was in my science class and decided uh, that I really didn't like it uh, because I discovered that college science was different than high school science, right? And, and okay. so I did, and I don't remember how this happened. <clears throat> I, I, I shifted over to thinking about going into computer science. And, um, and it was fairly new. I'm, I'm talking about 70, 71 now. And I enrolled in a class And you know more about this Brother Wilson and I, I do In terms of whether it's still being offered But the class was a FORTRAN class mm-hmm. uh, And I did poorly In that class And decided Well okay This is not for me either So pre meds not for me Computer science is not for me What do I do? And I was walking around campus one day, and I saw a sign that said, "Today, vocational—a vocational test is being offered. If you want to know maybe what you uh, uh, a career path for you, then you may want to go over to the career placement office and take it." So, I was in in, in struggle, of course, at that point, because I was trying to decide and and. I was getting ready to move into my classes where you had to declare uh, a major. Uh, And so I went over and took the vocational test. And uh, when I completed the test, they reviewed it with me and said that there are two areas that you uh, indicate um, aptitude for and some level of interest. One was ministry and the other was law. And I said, no way I'm going to be a preacher. <laughs> um, <laughs> not, not, that I, not that my father, uh, we, we didn't have a bad experience as a preacher's family. My, my father uh, allowed me to live my life and to be here was. He wasn't one of those, uh, uh, you had to do everything perfectly. He let me live and let me experience and dance and go to parties and, you know, that's, that's the environment I grew up in, but I still didn't want to be a preacher. So that then meant, okay, I'm going to listen to this test. And so now I'm going to shift into pre-law slash political science. And that's what I did. And so I pursued the track, that track all the way through. Um, <clears throat> and my father and mother, uh, thank God, were able to pay for my... Um, Uh, compensation. I wasn't able to get any financial aid because of of their level of compensation. And so they had to pay uh, for basic in my school. Uh, And so um, uh, when I graduated, uh, my my intention was, and I was involved in all the pre-law classes and so forth and so on, I was going to go to law school. But I had to figure out how do I pay for law school, okay? And um, uh, again, I'm in the last semester of my senior year college, and I'm working around campus. And I'm pondering next steps, um, and I see a sign that says, uh, all expense fellowship to the University of Georgia to get a master's degree in public administration. And so I saw it. And said, I'm going to go over here and talk to the recruiter. And I said, you know, it was a two-year program. I was you know, Everything was paid for. And they gave me a monthly. They were going to give a monthly stipend. And so I said, okay, uh, I can't figure out how to pay for law school. So I'll defer for now. And I'll go up to Georgia, up to Athens. And I'll just see kind of what's going on there. It's just a two-year commitment. And then we'll, we'll go to law school after that. So I get the fellowship. And I go to University of Georgia in Athens, uh, two-year program, get involved, did very well there, met the woman who became my wife. We married. Uh, I finished Georgia in 76. We got married in 76 and came to Texas. And so I was still wondering about this calling, this sense of going to law school. Uh, and so I ended up getting a job in Dallas, where first I was working during the summer at the DA's office in Fort Worth. But then I, uh, in October, we got married in August. Then in October, I got a job offer in the Dallas City Manager's Office, and we moved to Dallas. And so I worked in the Dallas City Manager's Office starting in 76. And when, <clears throat> when 78, 79 or so, Uh, My wife and I were talking, and I was talking about still having this law school interest. Uh, And I said, and and we decided that, okay, you need to make a decision, Joe. You need to decide, are we going to have children? Because we had now been married uh, about three years. Or are you going to go to law school? And what I had to process was, am I wanting to go to law school to be um, competitive with my classmates and friends who had already gone to law school, is that I want law school or is it a calling? Do I feel like God really wants me to go there? Um, now, what, what you have to also keep in mind in the background is that when I went to Georgia, I was a part of a United Methodist Church in Athens, rather, at the University of Georgia. And was close, got close to the pastor. And the pastor asked me, when are you going to give in to your calling? Okay. And I didn't want to hear that. I then get to Dallas and I joined a church, the Concord Baptist Church, one year old church then, very uh, fast growing. And E.K. Bailey was the pastor. He asked me, when are you going to give in to your calling? Uh, And then and so so I'm still not wanting to hear this thing. And I then end up uh, uh, saying to my wife, uh, I believe I'm called to go to law school. I don't know what kind of law I want to practice, but I feel that I'm being called to go to be a lawyer. And I said, if I get accepted at the University of Texas, that's where I want to go because I want to stay in Texas. And I believe the, the network of being a UT grad could work to my advantage. So I got accepted. And so we moved to Austin in August of 79 and uh, uh, joined the church we, we are at now, the David Chapel Church, because E.K. Bailey, my Dallas pastor, recommended David Chapel because his father, uh, my, my, the pastor David Chapel had started preaching under his father, and so we came. We looked at other churches. We joined David Chapel, and he and I and, uh, developed a very close relationship. My wife uh, became like his daughter, and he started asking me the same question as the other two pastors: "Joe, when you're going to give in to your call?" So I was ready. From the call in the last semester of law school. While I was in law school, I was able to figure out that I had some skill and ability at doing trials, as being a trial lawyer. I was competing and achieving and winning um, uh, trial uh, contests and trial, um, what do you call it? I call it a contest, with the, the debate uh, trial um, competitions. And so I knew then that, that trial law was where I had some ability and that I was going to do trial work. And, and so I'm in my last semester uh, looking at going to start a trial practice. And I could not hold back any longer this accelerating sense of a call to preach. And so I talked to Pastor Obi about it. And I was in the choir. Uh, And one Sunday morning in February of 1982, uh, the spirit overwhelmed me, and I just came rushing down from the choir off crying and telling him I can't hold it any longer. And that's when I started preaching. Um, And then I graduated, got licensed, and became an associate uh, minister there, learning how to do that uh, because my father had told me, Learn everything you can. He was still alive then. Learn everything you can from Pastor Oben, And I was content uh, preaching here and there and doing ministry. My wife and I gave leadership into the young adults then. And I was, I was content with just kind of learning while I was developing my, my litigation skills and practice. And so I was running both tracks. Um, and he said to me that uh, he believed the Lord had a calling on my life to be a pastor. And he said to me, I believe the Lord is calling you to pastor this church. And of course, I didn't want to hear all that because um, I didn't know what that meant in terms of my law practice. My wife, who is the daughter of a pastor and a moderator, Really wasn't interested in that. uh, Me being that, and so he said to me, "I've got to start working on Laverne to get her ready, while you pray about this as well." So that happened. Um, I ended up, uh, I guess, in um, becoming I came became his one of his associate pastors, and he died in ninety two, and. it was at that time that that I prayed about it and decided that um, I was being called to pastor the church I'm pastoring now, and so I, I threw myself into the nationwide search that they under uh, underwent. They ended up having eighteen uh, pastor men from across the city, uh, across the country, applying. Uh, I ended up being. Uh, right as the top candidate, I've been taking seminary classes at uh, the uh, Presbyterian Seminary uh, here in Austin. Um, and, and so uh, when I went through the interview process, uh, I said to the uh, members of the church who were interviewing me that I said, these were my words. I said, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that God has called me to Pastor David Chapel. But I'm not certain that the people will call me uh, because they wanted a prominent, nationally known, uh, at least the older members did, uh, man to be their pastor. And, of course, I hadn't pastored anything. And they really didn't even know until the application process that I'd even been going to seminary. And so it ended up happening in September uh, that I got called of, of, eight, of 92 to be David Chapel's pastor. And uh, there was some turmoil and it finally settled down uh, after a lawsuit um, in November. And I was installed um, to be the pastor. so I've just completed uh, last September my 28th year. 28 years.
0: That, That is fantastic. That is fantastic. When we look upon your law career exactly what type of law have you practiced or what have you done over the uh, career as an attorney or as a lawyer?
1: So uh, my first job as a lawyer uh, was in the Travis County Attorney's Office uh, which is here in where Austin's located and I started out um, uh, as every beginning lawyer did in that office handling what's called Class C misdemeanors. Uh, I was assigned to a Justice of the Peace Court where I handled traffic tickets, uh, Class C assaults, things of that, that nature, uh, and then advanced up into doing higher-level misdemeanors. Um, and so I started, uh, let me see, I started 83. I was licensed in 83, and so I started in 83, uh, doing that, and then I got assigned to a court. Uh, there were three, three or four county courts. Uh, this is this office only handled misdemeanors, so I never did uh, felonies. And so uh, I knew uh, uh, that I did not want to do criminal defense, but I wanted to do trial work. And when I was starting out, the, the way you got trial, real in court experience was to either be a prosecutor or to go and do what was called then insurance defense law where insurance companies would allow you to take uh, uh, minor cases and so they didn't mind risking uh, that on on beginning lawyers. Uh, but but the, the the higher volume of trial work was in a prosecutor's office and that's why I took, took that on but I knew I didn't want to stay in criminal law and Fortunately, uh, I advanced to be the chief of uh, litigation for the trial division of the county attorney's office, and I knew that I was trying to figure out now how to get out of this. Um, I got a call uh, from uh, a lawyer uh, with whom I had interacted, maybe even tried some cases, who apparently was on an airplane talking to uh, a partner of a law firm that was looking for a lawyer to do civil trial work and gave that partner my name, ended up calling me. And uh, I transitioned, Uh, I was chief, uh, let me see, this was 86, Uh, I left the county attorney's office doing criminal uh, prosecution, at that time I was supervising all of the trial lawyers and only taking some of the higher profile cases. And then I went uh, to this law firm and I was practicing civil trial work. Um, and, and of course, I'm still running this, this ministry track at the same time. And in uh, as I started processing, I felt the call of ministry taking more of my life uh, and my heart and soul Uh, I was with this law firm doing okay, doing well, and in 1990, uh, a judge called me while I was in my office and said, I need you to come over and mediate a case in my jury room. Now, mediation was just starting to get going in Texas, and, um, and I was processing how to transition out of a trial practice, which is a heavy hard work, you're always thinking day and night after hours about strategy, how to put on this trial, et cetera, et cetera. So it consumed a lot, a lot of time. Um, and, and I'm now also with children, and my wife is basically raising the kids uh, while I'm developing this, this practice and doing this ministry. Um, and so after I uh, get this case settled, and I was telling the judge, I don't know anything about mediation and I've never taken, I've never done one. He says, but you're a minister and you deal with that in interacting with people. So I then did that, resolved the case, and I started thinking maybe this is a way that I can transition out of a trial practice and start doing mediation, which was now opening up because of the, the, the trial dockets were getting so full that courts around the country literally were trying to figure out how can we resolve disputes other than by trials and mediation was it. And so I then got certified as a mediator uh, and, and uh, decided that's what I wanted to do. And in 1992, uh, uh, I got a call to become the chief of litigation for the State Bar of Texas. Um, and, and that was that I was going to lead the Department of Lawyers uh, around the state um, to handle litigation generally for the state bar and then to uh, file lawsuits against lawyers who had disciplinary problems. And so at that time, we had an office in Austin, we had an office in El Paso, in San Antonio, in Dallas, and in Fort Worth. And in those offices were some lawyers who tried cases, and so my job was to supervise them, to train them, to travel around, and uh, in certain cases that I would take, depending upon the complexity of them. And so I did that, and uh, one day I came home, and so Pastor Obie died in uh, uh, May. And I started the first of the year. I think I may have started in March uh, with this job. He dies in May. And now I've got this quandary of what do I do and do I apply to be the pastor? And I knew they couldn't pay me uh, what I was making. And so um, uh, I ended up going after it, getting it. And um, I said to the church, that I need a year, year and a half to downsize my full-time practice. And, and then I will come over to the church. And it ended up happening that things started uh, developing and growing where I left earlier than I had said. And so I started, uh, I went to the, came home one day, said to my wife that I need to resign from the litigation practice to go to the church. And that was in about two years, a uh, year and a half later uh, in in 94, when I left my full-time law practice, went over to the church, completed seminary and all of that, and started doing mediation. I was teaching uh, at the law school students how to try lawsuits. I was teaching advanced a basic and advanced civil litigation, um, and and I did that for about ten years, um, and and um, then then kept my keep my license. Started when I came to the church, consulting with lawyers on litigation cases, particularly those that I referred to them. I would do work on them, and then I started doing uh, mediation. And as the church grew, I pulled back on an active practice although I still do some advising and some mediation as I could fit it in and then I left the law school um, uh, when the heart problem uh, started increasing because I started at the law school in 93 taught until 2003 when I had cardiac arrest I uh, came back and decided I couldn't handle all of that so
0: so, Pastor Parker, you have kept a plate full, my <laughs> friend. You, you, man, you have kept a plate full. Yes, this is, yes, sir, you have kept a plate full, and that, that is very impressive. Very impressive. I, I personally, and this might sound crazy, but I, I just have never imagined uh, a pastor and an, an attorney in the same, <laughs> in the same piece, man. I, I, I don't know. That. Maybe that's me. Yeah.
1: You know? I know, I don't know maybe that's me but no, 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 it's you know it's a common common comment and and I, I you know the, uh, and I, I said to people jokingly well I've never had an issue with it but but I, <laughs> you know I have a sense of calling in both of those areas and here I am now on on the other side of 28 years moving toward 29 and what I will say to you is all of those experiences that I had uh, in the city manager's office, in the DA's office, in the county attorney's office, uh, practicing law—all of those have converged in some way, whether it's developing skills or experience, or I've had to call on those things in my pasture. And so, nothing I've done has been wasted by the Lord.
0: Yes, sir. That is that is. And, and I really gonna tell you, about, brother,
1: with, without my wife. Uh, we've been married as i said since 76 so we're going into our 45th year with three girls um uh, who are adults now uh if if and, and she never questioned any of those transitions that you heard yes, me sir. talk about she was it was always just went with it and supported it and and handled the home um while i did what i uh, while i did what i did so Without that, I don't know how I would have made it. That's all
0: right. That's all right. Well, several questions before we wrap up. One, one question that I, I do have. Um, I, I guess it's it's uh, one of those questions, and I've I've heard the term, and and um, people have used it, but the esquire term. I think it's one of the coolest terms ever. <laughs> It's one of the coolest terms ever, man. And I've never had the privilege of using it, you know, in, in its actual form. Esquire. I think it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's there yeah. there, you know, it's on, it's on point. It is, man. It's on point. I'll, I'll just be real. Yeah. With you. It's it's on point, man. <laughs> but talk to the audience about Esquire. What is that for anybody who doesn't understand the term Esquire? Yeah.
1: What is that well, all of, about? Of course, um, uh, as, as probably uh, most people know who've gone through school is that our origin, our legal um, background comes from England. Uh, and so a lot of our laws uh uh, find some of their origins in in that, although your home state, I think, of Louisiana, some of that is French. Um, yes, sir. You know, but, but outside of Louisiana uh, and and the Spanish influence in Texas and California and places like that, most of it is based in uh, English uh, and, and England, and it really came from them. I mean, you know, it, it was used in several ways. It, it, it had to do with uh, the, the English uh, gentry uh, in one way, uh, it would refer to those who were uh, being considered to be knights. And, and, and I think that somehow it just got developed as um, uh, a title of, of courtesy uh, that's used by lawyers uh, by, by lawyers. And, and when I use lawyers, I mean those who have actually passed a bar. Because you do have people who finish law school that don't get a uh, a license, um, and so it it has to do with uh, just just when you see that you know the person uh, is a lawyer. That's that's all it basically means, and and it's just one way of uh, indicating that. And if if it is important that people know that, um, and and sometimes it is because you know we like. Knowing that when someone makes a statement, there's some special level of knowledge that that person might have, whatever it is she or he is talking about. and So that just simply says that this person has been trained in the law, trained to think like a lawyer, and has some basic uh, information. So it's, it's, it's um, I don't know if I want to say prestige, uh, but I think some of us lawyers use it excuse me, in a prestigious way. And others of us just want to inform people that uh, we have that background. So when we write something or send something, uh we've got that specialized training. Well, the term definitely represents prestige. In my
0: opinion, <laughs> I'll just say that in my opinion, it represents.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, before we wrap up, the book that you've written, is called Holy Change. And I do believe it was written in 2008, 2009. Am I correct about that?
1: Uh, Let's talk about that for a second. Okay. So um, I decided that I wanted to uh, get, uh, I wanted to do some writing. And over the years, I felt that I had a special calling to do urban ministry, to work in urban settings. Uh, I wanted to do some writing and some reflecting and thinking about that. But because my life was so active, that it was difficult to settle down and get that done. So I decided that I would pursue a doctorate. Um, uh, I I did my Master's of Divinity uh, at Baylor in Truett Seminary. And they were trying to persuade me to go and get a PhD so that I ultimately could teach there or in some other kind of academic setting. Uh, but I decided that I didn't, that my calling was not in, in the academic world primarily, although I feel I do have some gifts as a, as a teacher. Um, and I, so I said um, that I did not want to get a PhD so I wanted to get a degree that, that focused more on the practice of ministry, which is the doctrine of ministry. And so I decided that I would look for schools that, that gave the doctrine of ministry degree. And I wanted one that uh, had a focus on urban ministry because I wanted to hone in on that. Uh, Princeton wanted me to come. And do a DMin, but they had a general DMin program, and I would have had to develop my own uh, curriculum, so to speak, by by doing an interdisciplinary uh, track. Um, and so when I looked around, I narrowed it down to uh, a school, a, a seminary in uh, Boston, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, called Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. And they had a specialty doctorate ministry uh, degree and program in what's called um, uh, ministry in a complex urban setting. And what they ended up doing was they used the MIT approach to systems thinking and combined that into urban ministry. So you look at urban areas as a system, and so the curriculum was designed to talk about uh, all of this, of course, is within the context of scripture and Christian faith, um, and so you, you, your curriculum dealt with studying systems theory, systems thinking, rather, uh, and you used use those, those books that taught that, that uh, were, were developed by MIT professors, then there were other urban ministry materials. And so I ended up um, uh, uh, getting that doctorate of ministry in urban ministry uh, or in studying complex urban settings from a systemic perspective. And while I was doing that, I was also working to try to abate uh, gentrification in the Chestnut neighborhood where our building, church building is located. And so what I decided to do was that I was going to take my work on gentrification and uh, the urban setting of my pastorate and study that. So I took my work, turned it into my uh, doctoral project and that's what I submitted. And so I ended up taking that project and I finished that, that doctorate program in 2003 in Boston and I then decided that I would turn my doctoral project into a book. And so Holy Change is a result of me taking my doctoral project and it is about my study of what was taking place in uh, uh, the, the 90s in the Chestnut neighborhood and I used the model of David Chapel and how I was leading them to help a help a community and how, um, if you want to uh, transform uh, a neighborhood and how a church should be involved with it, I then laid out a very practical approach using our example on how you do it. And uh, the Lord led me to call it Holy Change because I describe that process within the context of scripture, in the context of what churches are called to do, uh, and how a church ought to be a partner with the neighborhood where it lives. And so uh, I've used, used that whole approach not only in uh, uh, the church context, but as I've led things in the community, this idea of systems thinking and seeing the interconnectedness basically of everything is kind of how I process uh, things in in my leadership approach. And so that resulted in uh, holy change um, that that you're referencing.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Now, where can this book be acquired? Uh, I think it's still available uh, through Amazon. Okay. Awesome. Well, Amazon.com yeah, I, I, is. The place I I
1: published to it, it uh, privately, um, and and I think the the publisher probably still has it available. But I do believe it's still available through Amazon.
0: Okay. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, Pastor Parker, I definitely want to thank you for uh, joining us on the Boundless Podcast, and in my mind, you definitely are boundless for the things that you've done. And that's beginning with civil rights, uh, being a man of God, and of course, uh, being a man of the law. Those things are very impressive. And I want to, again, reach out my uh, sincerest thanks to all that you have done, and once again for being a guest on this podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Brother Wilson. Uh, I, I certainly appreciate you, and admire you uh, in your own accomplishments and achievements, and using this platform of a podcast uh, to give someone like me an opportunity just to kind of just um, talk and um, and, uh, to allow it to go into the public space. So I pray that God will continue to give you favor, not only on your podcast, but in your life, and you keep helping and challenging those of us who are on the receiving end of what you do.
0: Absolutely. So I'll do that and uh, you take care and be right, blessed. Thank okay? you so much. God bless you. Any comments, episode. feedback, or suggestions regarding this podcast is welcome. For a motivational speaker, Les Brown once said, It's okay to fail because if you land on your back, you can look up and then get up. Until next time, take care.